I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes. Harry, what cultural delicacies are you gorging yourself on this time? Well, I've got, we've got something that sort of combines two elements of the show, which is uh, courtesy of your friend Mark in uh, North of the Border, I'm going to say. Um, and it's the Andy Cap hot fries um, from, the, from the United States. Uh, taste the oven-baked crunch. And I have actually, I managed somehow to, to eat all these in Middlesbrough when I saw you and you gave them to me. And I, I also managed to bring the packet back with me and keep it, which is quite a, a remarkable effort. Um, I noticed that your wife sensibly re- refused to eat any, saying, uh, no, thank you. I've looked at the ingredients, <laughs> which, which I know I hadn't looked at the ingredients until just now. And I find it contains something I've never heard of before called teruli yeast. <laughs> it sounds like some some sort of disease that you would get after a I don't know a, a holiday an unwise holiday in foreign parts. It seems to me <laughs> under character in Bugsy Malone, I think it, it could be, <laughs> it could be. That's my name right. is Tarula. That was it, wasn't it? Yes, Tarula yeast. Well, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so they come in three. These were the hot fries flavors. Also, cheddar fries and barbecue fries. You, you said that you discovered that there was also a. A zesty ranch flavour. <laughs> zesty ranch, <laughs> exactly. Which uh, that sounds. I think that was. I think that was the one in High Chaparral. Uh, zesty ranch, um, and also uh, I'm pairing it with some, we're pairing it with some more savoury things, which are the new the new Cheetos cheese flavoured footballs. Oh yeah, there you are. That's the sound of them in the bag. They're, they're quite they're quite robust. I mean, the problem with a lot of these um, baked corn snacks, as I think we can call them. Is that when you open the packet, they tend to go they go soggy very very quickly, um, but the Cheeto footballs defy that. This packet's been open about a month, and as you can tell, still as as hard as they were before. So yes, and I thought they had a kind of smoky bacon element to them, but apparently they don't. They're just cheese flavored, um, and they're about sort of Subutio football size. So obviously could be could be put to use for a little game of something in the middle of a meal. 
<laughs> so that's what I've got, Dan. Andy Cap and Cheetah's footballs. I thought that Zesty Ranch, the cowboy, might have been in a storyline of Andy Cap and he would ride into Hartlepool and lasso some women or something. Maybe that was a storyline that I missed. On the packet, it says that Andy Cap, it says it's trademark or copyrighted 2005. It suggests that Andy Cap's quite a late arrival to the US. Well past his sell-by days, I would have thought, but there we are. Who knows? He's, he's timeless, isn't he, Andy? I think that's the case. It could be one of those things where people aren't really aware that he's a pretty hideous at times character in America and just buy the snacks for the, the funny snack character because there's also a, a Johnny's onion rings in many news agents and they have on the packet a stereotypical Frenchman with a beret and an accordion and things and they're based on the Onion Johnnies who used to ride from Brittany through through Britain selling onions during oh, the Oh, excellent. The I know it's also on the picture of Andy Cap on the cover, I now notice that he's... He normally has a fag in his mouth, but it's been—it's quite easy to just colour that in and make it into a uh, corn and potato hot fry. Um, he's not—you know—he's not actually popping. A, he's not popping a snack in his mouth. He's actually smoking a tab. <laughs> but anyway, there we are. I think that probably is enough on the him. <laughs> Three packets to the usual address, please. That's right, and, indeed, Andy. Andy. <laughs> just just the two. I think I think I might forgo the um the, the that yeast stuff. Well, yes, also, it's, they're, made, they're made by Conagra Brands of Chicago. So there we are. So if you're, if you're listening, people of Conagra. Sounds like something Pele would advertise, isn't it, Conagra? Anyway. And how else have you been passing the time, apart from sitting on a leather sofa in a converted archive building with me in Middlesbrough? Well, that was very. That was a very lovely evening, Dan. Thank you for thank you for you, you for organising it. I feel you were. It's very nice. It was almost no. It was almost. It felt like almost like normal life, didn't it? Which it did, uh, not it not did, something yeah. you can always save a Friday night in Middlesbrough. <laughs> no. Anyway, so so that was very nice. Well, the, the day after that, I went to I went to a Northern League game, and I met there a, a guy who was quite a well known uh, local league player. He played for Blyde Spartans and Whitley Bay and various play, places. Um, and he recognised me, and he sort of came up and started talking. I had a very nice chat with him. And he was with a younger bloke who had his son with him, and his son was very little. He's about three, and he's wearing a Newcastle United shirt. And this guy, the ex-player, said to this little boy, he said, this, this little boy's called Harry, and he said, this man's called Harry too, and he's famous. And the little boy's eyes sort of went like saucers, and he said, are you Harry Kane? <laughs> <laughs> And I, was, I was literally, that is probably the only time that I'll ever be mistaken for Harry Kane. The only thing I have is I'm tall and I'm a man. That's all I can think. Anyway, so that was very nice. Um, and, the, and the same guy was also telling me that that very morning, he had bumped into and had a conversation with friend of the podcast, uh, Brian Pop Robson, the original oh. Brian Robson. Uh, and he, he, said it was, he said it was quite interesting because Brian Pop Robson had also appeared in the background of some film of Manchester United celebrating on the Premier League program fever pitch because of course he was a I'd forgotten he was actually a coach with Alex Ferguson at Manchester United so you know he's had a quite a career I was reminded of that of course that also reminded me that uh, Brian Pop Robson was the the son-in-law of uh, Lenny Heppel the owner of Fandango's nightclub in Hexham they're very much the studio 54 of Northumberland I don't know if Andy Warhol and Bianca Jagger ever went there probably um, and Lenny Heppel was of course the man who was brought in by Malcolm Allison as a um, movement coach when he was at West Ham and at Middlesbrough and various other clubs. And people always thought that was a very, that showed how ahead of the times he was, Malcolm Allison. Um, but then I was reading my friend Michael Chaplin's new book, Newcastle United Stole My Heart. And in that, he mentions that Charlie Midden, 
the Bogota bandit who we mentioned in a previous podcast. When he was manager of Newcastle, he tried to improve the players' balance by getting them to do Scottish sword dancing lessons. <laughs> and as Michael says, sadly, no film of this exists. Or we don't, not, not that we know of, anyway. If anyone has found film of it, we'd certainly like to see it. So that was another thing. What else happened? Oh, yes, and then uh, I mentioned about Wrighton and Crawl Crook Albion, uh, I think, on the last pod, that, um, that that's the place to go for goals. Um, that very weekend, they played an FA Vars tie against Bishop Auckland, uh, which ended in a 3-3 draw. The FA Vars then goes straight to penalties, and Bishop Auckland won the penalty shootout 15-14. Wrighton missed four penalties. Bishops missed three. Um, both sides had to bring on a substitute goalkeeper, so there's lots of drama. But there was 36 penalties, and I wonder if that's the 15-14. I wonder if that's the biggest penalty shootout win in England in a, in a, in a sort of prop, what I'd call a proper competition. Um, obviously, Scunthorpe beat Worcester 14-13 and Liverpool beat Borough 14-13. But 15-14, it could be the biggest ever. Something to ponder. Breaking soccer news. It is. Soccer, so, soccer, <laughs> soccer stats update. <laughs> Any thrills in London, Andy? Well, um, the, the noisy pipes in my block of flats about which I've been boring you and all the listeners actually for a while have now stopped. It seemed mm. to coincide with, with Spurs losing some league games after their good start to the season. You know, as though normality has been restored across several sectors at once. <laughs> like, So if Spurs should move back to the top of the table in the next couple of months, I expect there'll be some renewed clanging in my bathroom you know like it's the, the laws of the universe or something I, I don't remember much of what I was taught about physics but I think there's something to do I think there's some connection there in some way um talking to my flat uh, twice recently I've received post um, for one of the neighbors but I hadn't checked the address and, and thought it was for me and started to open it then realized and, and given it to them so I but I'd obviously so I've opened it first and tried to slightly reseal it so now I, look, I now just look like I'm being Nose in it reminded me of an incident which I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but even if even if I have, I'm going to mention it again. Um, when we received the delivery, what we thought was a new Dubois at the office. This is in the late 90s. We under, unloaded all the boxes from the van. The van driver left. Then we opened one box, and it was a fetish magazine called Skin Two with a big picture of a leather boot, the big stiletto. It was seven quid. It was. <laughs> we did wonder if maybe we could sell one or two to other people in the in the other offices in our block. You know, would, would, would they say, no, I'm already a subscriber? Because <laughs> so our printers at the time used to print quite a few uh, specialist magazines of various kinds, and this is obviously one of them. So we did wonder if the publishers of Skin 2 had also unpacked what they thought was their new issue and they'd got the latest WC instead, which that month featured Graham Taylor on the cover. So did they look at it and think, <laughs> oh, man, we went too far this time. Or, or, or God, this is going to be our bestseller ever. <laughs> anyway, I, I might mention the next time I go, I have to go and see my neighbour when they've inadvertently opened one of, their water, one of their filters for a water purifier again, as I did the other day. Break the ice with them. <laughs> Uh, in soccer news, uh, a bit of soccer news, it's a grim time, of course, for two of the big three in the East Midlands. Uh, Forrest now, on the, I think, their 14th manager in 10 years. Mm. Steve Cooper having taken over from Chris Hewton, while Derby are going into administration. They have 12 points deducted. Uh, Wickham, who were, rele- were relegated in place of Derby last season, are considering legal action over Derby not having had the points taken off last season. Because Wickham only went down by a point in the end, I think. Derby also face... Further points deductions for other financial breaches as well, so that their owner Mel Morris is looking for a buyer, but not not an attractive option at the moment. This is connected to this. It's it's worth anyone having a look. There's a YouTube documentary that was made by Al Jazeera's English Channel last month, which didn't get as much coverage as in the press. I thought it might have done. It's called the Man Who the Men Who Sell Football, which is about 
a particular a financier called Chris Samuelson, who's who's filmed secretly talking about how he finds buyers for various clubs, even buyers with potentially um, people who might be persona non grata in their own countries for whatever reason. Anyway, there's a section in that film about Derby, so um, look that up if you get a chance. Reading also mentioned that, Reading, another club who may now uh, also be facing... Uh, administration yeah it's, it's a it's a it's a good league the championship isn't it? Yeah. It's going well, certainly very plenty well. going on isn't there i mean it's, <laughs> yeah. it's never never a dull moment <laughs> and sad news harry about your another spurs striker like you in the death of jimmy greaves uh yeah that was a yes it was a, it's a sort of coincidence in a way that that Gert muller would die you know died the month before and jimmy greaves i suppose probably the nearest english equivalent to Gert muller in terms of his goal score i know he's a bit earlier but still i mean a really incredible goal scoring record i mean he he um he was the top goal scorer in the english top flight six times uh, between 58 and 69 obviously he played for ac milan as well he was quite um I suppose he was kind of like a mod, a sort of mod footballer. He's probably one of the first of the of a kind of post-national service generation. He's a bit of a kind of cheeky chappy, which often landed him in trouble. I think he was sort of cheeky, he was sort of anti-authoritarian, but not in a political way. More like, I guess, like the Beatles when they first appeared, they were always a bit, they were a bit sort of, a bit sort of cheeky on TV. And I think Jimmy Greaves was like that as well. And it often seemed to land him in trouble, particularly with Alf Ramsey, because he used to. Um, Whenever Alf Ramsey came into the room at one time, he used to whistle "What's It All About, Alfie?" Um, the theme tune for the, the, the. So, so yeah, so he was. It was a really. It hadn't been a really fantastic player. One of the things that people often said about him was something that people often talked about, which don't you don't hear much about now, was the, that he when he shot, he didn't have much backlift. That he could hit the ball really hard without swinging his foot back, which of course made it much more difficult for the goalkeeper to predict what was going to happen. So yeah, so he was, a, he, and I, I remember it was also when I was a boy, when I first started playing football, it'd be about sort of seven years old, so it's probably about 1968, something like that, that in those days, like, I suppose they probably still do, kids used to, when you played football, the best player would always say, I'm going to be, and in, in 68, it was always Bobby Charlton, and then the second best player would be Jimmy Greaves. Although by then he'd actually stopped playing for England. I mean, he hadn't. He played his last game for England in 1967 when he was only 27 years old. But he was still, you know, because he was such a great goal scorer, he's still in people's mind. And then, of course, shortly after that, George Best replaced Bobby Charlton and Jimmy Greaves as the one that everyone wanted, you know, every kid wanted to be. So sorry to see him go because it was also sort of around a lot of times. And I think the first time indeed that I ever saw Andy um, was on the Satan Greavesy. Yes, the, the, it was the first TV show to do an item on WSC. We weren't in the studio with them. We were interviewed by Peter Brackley, who came around to our extremely small office at the time. We could barely all of us fit into the room. And uh, I don't remember if they said, I've been trying to find a copy of this this program ever since, actually. I mentioned it to a few people. It's not on YouTube. But it was, it's uh, from 1980, either end of 88 or beginning of 89, I think, but I've never, I've never managed to find it. it. It's interesting that thing Harry mentioned about him being top scorer six times, but he didn't actually win the, he did so without winning the league because he joined Spurs after they'd won the league. So th- that was also quite an achievement. He was, um, I think, George Best's favourite player. The person that Best said, well, he was asked once about who, you know, which player did he sort of look up to when he started playing, and he said, Greaves and um, that that famous goal clip where he accelerates against Man United, where he accelerates past defenders and sort of passes the ball into that makes him look very modern. I remember a while ago seeing Johnny Giles talking about Greaves on one of those RTE panel shows. It's uh, stuff on YouTube and saying that the thing with Greaves was he didn't seem bothered by pressure when he was playing, as though he was slightly detached from it when he was on the pitch, slightly in a way slightly unemotional. There are a couple of interviews with him from that time 
when he was a player saying he didn't really watch football. He was only really interested in playing. And part of that, I guess, because he'd been very talented from when he was very young. So he'd obviously been playing competitive football from when he was in his in his early teens. And maybe that changed a bit, especially once he became a, a, a TV pundit in the 80s. And they obviously was, was going to a lot more games and, and talking about you know, the other week's action and lots of stuff. Something that's also mentioned about him, which I didn't know, actually, or I don't remember hearing about before, was that he could have signed for Derby. He left Spurs in the 1970s a make-weight, really, where Spurs were buying Martin Peters and West Ham wanted a player in exchange. And he slightly ignominiously, because he's only 30 at the time, he, he was kind of shifted off to West Ham as a, as a make-weight in the Martin Peters deal. But um, uh, he could have, Clifford talked to him about going to Derby and he, he turned it down because he didn't want to uh, leave London. And, and, stay, and instead went to West Ham and it was there that his, his sort of drinking, he said, became a problem for him because he, he felt demotivated. It wasn't the, the pressure of expectation anymore. He, he wasn't really, West Ham weren't really expected to be successful and he didn't feel like he was being pushed. But obviously would have been the case. Um, perhaps he would have been revitalised by, by Clough. Maybe could have had another two, three years at the top level, maybe. And being such a, a handsome man and a brilliant player, there were plenty of chances for off-the-field endorsements down the years and I think a literary adventure as well, Harry. Yeah, he, he wrote a series, I think four books, um, with uh, Norman Giller and they feature a, a character, strangely, called Jackie Groves, obviously not to be confused with Jimmy Greaves. Um, I do remember, I think the first one of the series... Um, starts with starts with the character in bed with Miss World, um, and kind of deteriorates from there. Um, I should say that one interesting thing about the books is that the and it's something that seems quite a, sort of ahead of its time. I'm not sure is that the reason that's given from it for for Jackie Grove's promiscuity is that he that he was sexually abused as a child. Um, which again is quite kind of it seems quite shocking. I've only just I've only just found that now because I was just looking at a, a, a thing about it, which was actually in one of the When Saturday Comes Annuals. Um, so what? So why that was why that featured in that book? I'm not I'm not altogether sure, but there we are. Yeah, Norman Giller, who, who wrote a lot of things with Jim Greaves and other people, is a prolific writer. He wrote over a hundred books, a bit like like George Simenon, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but according of. to his according to his Wikipedia page, Norman Giller, he's had he's still around. He's had a quote um, thirty million words published in books, newspaper, and magazines, but not thirty million different words, though. I bet, and that that would be something, <laughs> wouldn't it? Be? Um, there must be a lot of the and ah and it, so it's not quite as impressive as it initially sounds, Norman. And another recent death uh, caught your eye, Andy. Yes, um, Arthur Smith, Arthur Hoyt Smith, who's a former winger with with Berry, started playing for Berry Co-op, then moved to Berry, and also played for Leicester in the thirties. He died on August the twenty-first. He'd been the oldest living British professional football ex-player. He was one hundred and six. He just turned twenty-four when the war started. When he was registered with Leicester at the time of the Second World War then didn't carry on with his playing career after all when he was 31. So he lost a lot of years that would have been his career. But he's surely one of the oldest ex-professional players there's ever been, I would have thought, to have got to 106 from the from the period when he was playing. So the website, ENFA, English National Football Archive, are trying to find out who is currently the oldest living player, which is a slightly tricky thing to do because you need, obviously need to find people's exact um, birth date. So if any of the listeners happen to know anyone, maybe one of your neighbours who's born in the 1910s, who played at least one league game, that's a criteria just up to have played in the Football League, and they're still around, then let us know and uh, and we'll pass it on. And Neil Warnock might sign them for Borough. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Loughborough Corinthians, Michel Vonk, the portrayal of corner flags in abstract Latvian art, and it's landed on British referees abroad. Hmm. A strange coincidence from the random topic generator, sort of, because of course a foreign referee is about to take charge of a Premier League game here quite soon. The Australian Jared Gillette. Or is it pronounced like the item of clothing, gilet, and might he wear one for the occasion? Who knows? That would be a lovely development. Anyhow, Andy, what on earth does that topic bring to mind? Well, um, there, there were several British referees, around uh, 20 or, to- or so in total at different times, who were brought over to work in Argentina in the 50s, and some of them stayed there for quite a few years. Now, of course, the, the, nowhere now would there be a clamour for British referees to come over. Certainly, certainly what we based on what we saw during the Euros, where there's a strong case for having some European officials and certainly those in the, in the VAR cabin uh, taking charge of matches here, given that there were far fewer controversies during the Euros than we get here. But anyway, um, the Argentinian FA had come to think they needed officials from elsewhere because their home referees are getting accused of favouritism too often. And, and, and it was a general belief that they were prone to stopping play too often and, and, leading to, and partly leading to sort of incidents that might inflame what were already be fair to say, fairly volatile crowds. When Argentina had lots of, lots of uh, the stadiums in Argentina had or still have uh, moats as well as fences to discourage uh, pitch invasions, obviously, of, um, often didn't work. So, that, I mean, the perception at the time was that, that the UK had some of the best referees and, and were, I think, less inclined to blow for fouls for sort of minor infringements. It was only in 1958 the Argentinian FA stopped bringing over referees from here, though one of the referees, Robert Turner, settled in, in Buenos Aires and carried on roughing there for a few years and well, he's also a sports teacher at a school in Buenos Aires. And uh, he'd refereed games at 1957 South American Championships, including the final, Brazil v. Argentina. And uh, uh, it was staged in Peru. And one newspaper report commended him and offered what's presumably meant to be a compliment on his nationality. They said, Turner brought to the task all the phlegm of the islands. But it sounds like <laughs> me first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, then there's also, of course, that man, Mark Clattenburg, a man Everton fans will always remember for his... Uh, shall we say, contentious refereeing of an Everton-Liverpool game in uh, 2007, which I'll, I'll, I'll um, pass over quickly. But he um, also he had a bit of a wobble in that game, it would be fair to say. He did later take charge of a Champions League and uh, final under Euro, and Euro 2016. I mean, he was appointed head of refereeing at the Saudi uh, Football Federation in 2017, took over from Howard Webb in that role. But he only stuck around for a year and a half. And uh, saying about his early days that they... Um, there is a quote from him saying they failed in the basic standards and understandings of the law, understanding of the laws of the game. It seems fairly major, you think, <laughs> for people who are already referees. But I mean, as 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 we have discussed this a bit before, actually, in relation to referees in the former Soviet bloc countries, where what are refereeing standards going to be like in an authoritarian country where some teams are? to some extent favoured by parts of the state or run by people connected to state organisations and might be required to win certain games. And so I'm not saying that the Saudi league is necessarily like that, but still, I suppose the fact the FA they're brought in outside is the coach does suggest at least they recognise that there might be some issues. But I mean, good luck with getting an entirely fair and impartial referee in, in, in those circumstances. And so in terms of British referees, Abroad, more generally, I mean, those who are probably best remembered are, are for cock-ups at, at, or what seemed to be cock-ups at the World Cup, but certainly one definitely was, which in Croatia-Australia game in 2006, Graham Pohl booked um, Josip Simunic um, three times, uh, showing him two, uh, uh, two yellows during the game, then the third after the final whistle 
followed by a red after Samunic, who was obviously pushing his luck a bit, um, uh, shoved him. And that was the end of his World Cup, and he retired from international matches after that game. Then there's also uh, Clive Thomas, the second most famous product of Tony Pandy after the male voice choir. Uh, 1978, he um, blew for time in the Brazil-Sweden game, first round game, just as Brazil scored what would have been the winning goal from a corner because there's famous images of Thomas walking away being pursued by irate and you know, baffled Brazilian players where he's making a big gesture, kind of tapping it, holding his arm up and kind of tapping his wrist. They're very rare for referees to blow for time when there's goalmouth action going on. I would have thought, I can't remember, certainly any other famous occasion when that happened. Almost as though subconsciously Clive perhaps was just a bit too keen on the limelight. <laughs> Clive also, of course, remembered by Everton fans for his um, controversial performance in the game against Liverpool, which I'll also um, um, not say any more about. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Harry? Well, I think Andy mentions the, the, the referees in Argentina. I think the first one who went over was in, in 1937. It was a guy called Isaac Caswell. He was actually a Labour councillor in Blackburn uh, as well when he went over there. And he, he was brought in, I think, because there'd been fears about corruption and bias towards the bigger teams in Argentina. Um, he came back to England in '39. The, the the influx of English referees that they were brought over and they were actually paid I think eighty five dollars a month, which I think they earned because in nineteen forty eight the part of the reason the English referees were brought over was because in nineteen forty eight an Arge- a, a domestic official in Argentina had almost been lynched by fans of Newell Old Boys. So the the eighty five dollars was <laughs> was it was it was well earned. Uh, there were quite a few. Um, one of the referees that I noticed who went over there was a man called Jack Barrick, who. Also, as well as as well as refereeing the 1948 FA Cup final, going out to Argentina and refereeing there, I think he took charge of about 11 games in Argentina. Um, but also, Jack Barrett was also very keen on stock car racing and was the starter at stock car races at uh, Bruffield Stadium in Northampton, so quite a famous speedway, and at Bellevue in Manchester. And he and someone remind someone remind he was he's fondly remembered as the starter by fans of stock car racing for his for his loud tweed jackets and rolling accent like John Arlott. So there we are. So that's, that was him. It's also been mentioned on this podcast before. I'm sure Gordon Hill, the swinging 1970s referee with the sort of Abigail parties party hairstyle, uh, the nonconformist rebel who wrote a, wrote a book um, called Give a Little Whistle, I think. Um, he ref the 1975 League Cup final, always felt that he was held back because of his non-conformism. And so he emigrated to America, where he became a referee in the North American Soccer League. Um, and he actually refereed the Soccer Bowl 76 uh, between the Toronto Metros, Metros Croatia and Minnesota Kicks, um, which Toronto won. Eusebio scored. I think he was probably more Metros than Croatia. Um, and I was, well, I'm really excited. I'm really only mentioning this because I was excited to discover that in the Minnesota kicks side was Frank Spragan, the old Middlesbrough oh. fullback. So there we are. So worth worth talking about that just for the sake of that. Well, from my point of view, anyway. Um, another another thing that brings to mind is also a, a guy called Harry Harry Goodley, who um, went out and refereed in Italy um, before the First World War. And he was quite an interesting figure. He's from a family of Nottinghamshire lace makers. And there was quite a big connection because Turin was a, the centre of the Italian textile industry. It was quite a lot, big connection between Turin and Nottingham. And Harry Goodley went out to work for a man called Alfred Dick, who was a Swiss textile maker in Turin. He was also the president of Juventus. And it's said that Harry Goodley was the man who brought the black and white striped kits from Nottingham 
that became Juventus's kit. Um, but aside from that, he tried he tried to be a professional player in Italy, but I don't think he was quite good enough. But it was recorded that he knew, unlike many Italians, he knew the rules of the game thoroughly, and so he became a referee. And he actually was the referee of of Italy's first international against France in 1910, and which they lost six two, and also they refereed. Italy's first ever international victory in 1912. Um, and then he came back to England to fight in World War One, where he, he was reportedly killed and there was a great mourning for him in Italy. Um, but it turned out he hadn't been killed at all and he turned up back there in about 1920. Um, so he's sort of fondly remembered in Italy. Again, again, a referee, he was in the... He refereed club games as well in what was then the Prima Categoria, which was the sort of forefather of Serie A. So he, you know, had quite a big influence on Italian football. Another person who perhaps didn't have quite the same influence, but he's a, an old friend of mine, Dave Roberts, um, who people might remember he used to be a, a presenter on Sky TV, and he's a, a from Middlesbrough fan. And he went out to work, I think, for ESPN in Singapore. And in two thousand and five, the biggest game in Indian football is the uh, Kolkata Derby between East Bengal and Mohin Bagan, uh, which is played at the Salt Lake Stadium. Uh, draws a, an official crowd of about 110,000. And there'd been lots of accusations about bias and incompetent refereeing. And so the Indian football authorities decided to bring in an outside referee, perhaps the only people who still believed in English referees. And so Dave Roberts so it was brought in to referee that game in front of 110,000 people. Um, having previously, his previous biggest game was in the, was in the Northern Premier League. So, so quite a big difference in the crowd and the atmosphere, I suspect, from Blythe Spartans against Spennymore. Although, I, oh, I know, maybe not, actually, I'll say it. <laughs> um, um, and I think Mohan won 1-0. And, uh, and Dave Roberts, um, he booked the match-winning goal scorer for diving and had to stop the match to warn both coaches about their behaviour. And he also warded a penalty that was missed and turned aside another penalty appeal from East Bengal. But one local reporter, I know, said... Dave Roberts conducted the game like an excellent bandmaster. Not a thing you'd read in a British paper. <laughs> you can't say fairer than that. <laughs> you can't. I think that's right. I think that's. I'd like to see more of that. Conducted the game like an excellent bandmaster. One detail about Clive Thomas in the half decent football book when Saturday comes publication is that at the time of writing he was chosen to become High Sheriff of Mid Glamorgan for the year commencing two thousand and five, which is a nice little detail, isn't it? <laughs> Well, he's done very well for himself. Well done, Clive. Doesn't doesn't uh, you know? Doesn't alter my view that he's a bit of a controversial individual in football in English football history. <laughs> I, I fear. Why do you think British referees were requested early on in the game, Andy? Was it a stereotypical sense of fair play? Maybe it also went partly with English co- British coaches were very highly regarded, weren't they? To the extent that the word Mister is is it in Italy or Spain where Mister became yeah. a word for for a manager. Yeah, that was. I think it was was that in honour of Ralph Galloway, perhaps. I think it might be. Yeah, he was. He was also. He was also manager of Penarol in in Uruguay as well. It might be him, or it might be the man from Crook, whose name has now disappeared from my head. <laughs> but I think, yeah, in general, there was a, a perception, possibly misplaced, that you know, as as Britain or maybe even England specifically was seen as kind of the home of the game. That they, British, English referees, British referees would would had a better understanding of how to, you know, let the game flow and that sort of stuff, and that, and that they were less inclined. I thought oh, that's probably been archetype, even quite recently. They'd be less inclined to, to blow for fouls and to, and to kind of stop play than local referees would have been. And also just the fact that they were, 
outsiders. And I suppose they didn't, in the case of Argentina, they wouldn't want to bring in referees from maybe from another South American country because they, you know, although they'd be outsiders, they'd nonetheless be from, you know, sort of rival countries. So bringing in referees from Europe and Argentinian football had a lot of historical connections to England. A lot of the, the clubs have been founded by English people. So I think it was both in a way a bit of a, although Argentina wasn't a colony, kind of a colonial mindset in a way, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, it was quite interesting because in, in um, I noticed with, with with Isaac Caswell when he he I think the first game that he took charge of in 1937 was racing against Ferro and El Grafico wrote, had a, a massive piece just analysing his refereeing performance. You know, it's about it's about 1500 words long. I mean, you can find it on the internet. You, know, you can find it, on, and, and it and it really was sort of talking about that. One of the things that the reporter noted. Um, although this is through Google Translate, which is not always the most, it was the, the fact that he didn't, he wasn't pernickety about where the free kicks were taken from, because obviously maybe in Argentinian football they'd wanted it taken, they'd wanted it taken on the exact spot, and it says he just pointed to a place that he regarded as near where the foul had taken, rather than <laughs> rather than sort of like you know making it. So that was a sort of thing that he'd, he had kind of let the game flow. That was something that people sort of noticed that there was a maybe a confidence about English referees, you know, because they had refer also they'd refereed, I suppose, but you know, big, you know, big games like the FA Cup final and things like that. So there seemed to be this sort of sense as well with the, the, that they that the that the English sort of understood the laws of the game, having created them, I suppose. That was still that sort of sense, wasn't there? Um and as you say, kind of fair you know, this idea of British fair play as well, you know, which was still a Something that people <laughs> people still believed in in those days, as, as you say, probably unlikely that anyone would think of it now. Sadly, <laughs> that pointing to a vague area sounds quite quite like a philosophical thing, which I like. But it also robs the fans of the chance to shout "Get it back," which is surely one of the great joys of bothering to go to a match, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, yeah, with the, the, the throw-ins particularly, you like to yeah, see someone yeah. pretending to throw it, pretending to throw it as they gradually wander <laughs> down the <laughs> wander down the touchline. We all like to see that, don't we? And to go back a few minutes to clarify, our lawyers have been in touch. When you said swinging Gordon Hill, you just meant sort of the swinging sixties, didn't you? you I did. Yes, I did. I did. I say swinging. I was a swinging referee. Yes, I did. Just mean that I was like swinging sixties. I wasn't suggesting anything else, Dan. Yes, the so swinging nineteen seventies. I think I said yes. No, just you know, just general. Not, not in a not in a naughty Nunthorpe way, Dan. He did look a bit like Leslie Thomas, author of the Virgin Soldiers. And several, he did um, look like him. Novels, right. But that, that's entirely a coincidence. <laughs> Leslie Thomas, who once thought, erroneously thought he'd been awarded something like an OBE or a CBE because it was listed in newspapers and it was actually John Arlott had been awarded something, but uh, John Arlott's full name was Leslie Thomas John Arlott. And the newspaper had a list of people who'd been awarded, and there was a page break between Leslie Thomas and John Arlott. And people thought Leslie Thomas had been awarded, and he was phoned up by the newspapers congratulating him on having whatever it was, an, an OBE or something. And he, it was quoted saying it was a great surprise, given that he wrote, you know, for the raunchy novels. But in fact, it was just John Arlott's full name. <laughs> I should say, I was, on the on the topic of British fair play, I suppose the only the last place where that still existed was on Jus en Frontier, where of course Arthur Ellis, yes, who had right. refereed in Argentina, he was he was the sort of he was the kind of match referee for Jus en Frontier. Yeah, he he was the um, he was the referee for it for the the British. It's a knockout, and in the European ones, he was one of the the assistant referees. They had two Swiss guys called Guido and Gennaro. Guido and Gennaro, yes. who wore who wore who wore like blue blazers i recall yeah. and so he was so he was just there but you see he was still there wasn't he as, as i say the personification 
And he had he had been literally, I think he was flown in, wasn't he, to South America to referee major cup finals and things at one point. So that's my vague recollection of it. But I do, yes, I say he was. He, that was probably the last the last time the British were. were, were it was fair play with <laughs> Arthur Ellis, Guido, and Gennaro. It's interesting to mention referees' uniforms and things like that because I was wondering when all countries you know, well, made it uniform for everyone to wear black and did they have to wear exotic colours in Argentina, for example? That would have pleased me if they did. Yeah, it, there were quite a few countries where teams, or still do, wear black shirts, or at least goalkeepers often wore all black. So in, I think in Germany, for example, certainly once the Bundesliga started, well, goalkeepers often wear all black. Referee, the referee uniform was light blue shirts with black shorts. They were, that was the, always the referees, because I guess there were hardly any... Uh, German club sides who played in light blue. Yeah, I, th- I think the person who, who introduced the black um, refereeing uniform was that Ken Aston. I think. I think he was. Ah. The, I think he. I think he introduced it because he saw a jacket in a in an army surplus store <laughs> that that had pockets in it that he thought would be useful as a referee because it had because like, it had a lot of pockets in it. They'd be able to say he'd be able to carry his um, his you know <laughs> his notebook and his pen and I don't know his spare whistle or whatever <laughs> referee carries. I don't know. So I think Swiss it was, Army I think, knife. <laughs> Swiss, exactly. Yeah, we'd have one of those things to get a stone out of a horse's hoof, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think so. I think he was the one who introduced the, the idea of the sort of black uniform with the white trim. I think before that, the, 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 I think referees are just because quite often in the old, old World Cup, I think the, the first referee in a World Cup final was a Belgian guy called Jean Langenis. That, that name pops into my head. I think that's right. Um, and he um, and he just wore sort of like a tweed jacket and jodhpurs and a cap. A bit like sort of Eric von Stroheim, as if refereeing a football match was like directing an epic film, <laughs> which I suppose it was in some ways. Jackpot ticket, pound a goal. Draw it off time. Five hundred pound prize draw. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves, hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to when Saturday comes, and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in one hundred percent recyclable wrapping which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts, and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk. Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw at half time, £500, yours to take on tonight. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Uh, well, I've gone for uh, the Borussia Dortmund squad with Veer uh, Haltenfest und Troy Zusammen. We firmly and faithfully stick together, uh, which celebrates the winning the European Cup Winners' Cup uh, in 1966 against Liverpool, played at Hampden Park. Liverpool were English champions that year, and Dortmund were runners-up in the Bundesliga. But that was towards the end of a successful period for them. They were in the second division for a bit in the 70s when they had no, there was a while when they had no uh, German international players in the squad. And they only really made a comeback as a major force at the end of the 80s since when, of course, they've been the main, or the, the biggest single challenges to, to Bayern. And it's not the thing in retrospect, the very few of the British clubs who won major trophies in the 60s and certainly all that won European trophies seem to have put out records celebrating, which is odd when you think of the general to a pop culture boom here at the time. There are loads of successful groups from Manchester and Liverpool, for example, and all those 
the, all the teams in those, those cities won major trophies and, and some of the in those people in those bands presumably supported those teams you, I mean obviously you wouldn't have expected the Beatles to get involved but does it seem like a a missed opportunity for the searchers or Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders <laughs> <laughs> What's your choice, Harry, this time? I've gone for a song about um, SK Lears um, from Belgium, um, and it's done by a, a band called Spy on Cop, um, you know, named after the battle in the Boer War, which for some reason gave its name to football terraces in England for reasons that are clouded in mystery, or to the art of me anyway. Um, and it's uh, I'm quite taken with it because it's, it was... Probably it was made in the 1980s. Probably when Liers uh, got promoted back to the Belgian top flight in 1988. Um, I should say that that uh, Liers it's a town sort of slightly to the east of Antwerp, quite a pretty place with a very nice bar by the station. But anyway, um, they, the stadium has quite a long name, but is generally known as Het Lisp um, because it's in a part of part of uh, Lier that's called Lisp. Um, so it's quite an unusual st- stadium. And I always thought Lisp is one of those words. It's a bit uncruel, isn't it? Because if you had a lisp, you wouldn't be able to say it, would you? It's sort of like, anyway, that sounds like that sounds like a Bob Munkhouse joke. I realise what I say. Um, also, also the, um, the why the, have you had a lisp and you were a footballer in the Isthmian League? That, exactly what I was going to thought. I didn't think that if if the if the Isthmian League champions ever got to play at Hest Lisp, it would, oh dear. Anyway. The most computer screens covered now. Um, or, anyway, or, or if Mike Tyson was the commentator, not that you'd make, not that you'd make fun of Mike Tyson. <laughs> no, I think that people wouldn't know. I think you keep that to yourself. The other thing with with Elias is that their star player. I think we may have I'm sure Andy may have mentioned him in terms of nominative determinism because their star player was in the 1930s was the Belgium's top scorer for a lot of years, uh, a, a tall talismanic centre forward whose name was Bernard Voorhoof and uh, Voorhoof. In Dutch means forehead. Uh, quite a good name for a man who headed the ball a lot, I suspect. choice this time comes from the fact that I've been reading a fair bit recently about African experiments in Marxist-Leninism because I know how to live and be quite attractive to women. So it comes from 1968 and the Mozambican team Ferroviaria di Lorenzo Marquez and is sung by Georgina Lorenzo and that year they celebrated one of eight championships in the colonial period under Portuguese occupation when they played at the Estadio Salazar named after the Portuguese dictator but after independence in 1976 and heralding the Marxist-Leninist era the city of Lorenzo Marquez became Maputo as it is now the stadium was renamed and they became Club Ferrovaria 
de Maputo and won the league twice and then won another eight titles after all that Marxist-Leninism went wrong, as a detailed analysis might say. It's a country associated with a hideous civil war, so it's quite nice to bring some sunny music from there. Plus, Ferroviaria means railway and the club are nicknamed Os Locomotivas and have a diesel locomotive on the badge. The crew Alexandra of South East Africa. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I was joined by Hugh Bunce from the Portsmouth podcast, P.O. Forecast. Yeah, so it started back, I think this is our fourth season this year doing the podcast on a weekly level. So we used to be just a blog actually, and it started off with Adam, who runs Pompey News now, um, who, which is our sort of our website, our social media presence, etc. And we had a really good reach from that. So it was at that stage about five years ago where there was the two of us. And we had a little chat and I said I really wanted to, you know, start a podcast off the back of that. So we did it. We launched the podcast off the back of our social media thing. And the team's just grown and grown. So we've got about four or five of us who can rotate and come on the show. We've got about eight or 10 writers now as well who've been brought in to sort of bring content out on a weekly basis. So we've gone from a two-man sort of band into a quite a big group of us all now as well. And it's even become a social thing. So we're going out, meeting each other at games. And we've become really good mates. And it's been really, really an amazing journey and better than I could ever dreamed of, really. Every week we do sort of a review on the game that's happened. We also have a guest from you know, the people we're playing against coming up. So this week we have one of the guys from Charlton Live come on the podcast and we have sort of similar, similar people to us, I suppose, who give it like sort of a half an hour insight on the team we're playing against. You know, we're a little bit analytics based as well. So we sort of dive into that sort of thing, nerd out a little bit, but it's also just quite jovial. And it's, um, it's, it's quite interesting to see the reach we've got actually, because we've got a lot of fans who listen abroad and I know Portsmouth is a bit of a Navy city. So maybe more than other clubs, we've sort of got fans displaced all around the world, but it's been great to bring local fans, you know, fans from Australia, you know, LA, everywhere around the world, really, just sort of just getting that discussion point. And every week, the next part we do is we we tweet out a question, everyone gets involved, you know, responds, and then we just sort of answer everyone's questions and talk through them each week. You say you invite guests from other clubs. When you get promoted again, or you get two promotions, will you invite a Southampton fan on? It's a difficult one, actually. Um, this actually happened during the Cup, and they actually approached me about coming on their podcast. And after quite a lot of deliberation about it, I didn't go on the show, actually. So it, it just seemed to me that it wouldn't be a very natural sort of show, really. But obviously, there's you know clubs down the road. We do it with Bournemouth. We're very friendly with them. Brighton, fight anyone but that lot, basically, down the road is acceptable. I remember Loire Loire came on our show because you have a lot of ex-footballers as well I suppose that come on the show and, and talk about their experiences and he was just talking about the time when Harry Redknapp 
left us and went to them and how much it meant to the players and how annoyed they were. I remember Loire Loire said he was like a lion and he was up for the game and he couldn't believe that he could leave the club, fair enough. But to go there was, was unforgivable. So that's just coming from the words of a player, really, who's played for the club club and quite a famous player, I suppose. And he you know, shows really how much it means to not just the, the fans, but the players as well. So moving on to your life as a fan, when and why did you become a Pompey fan and start going to Fratton Park? I'm from Gosport originally, which is just over the road, basically over the water, near the side of the harbour for people who don't know Portsmouth very well. And my family are all from there as well. So my mum, my dad, my cousins, everybody's a Portsmouth fan. So it's not really an option, but yeah, it's just one of those things that I suppose you fall into in your family. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to be part of a club in that sense that has so much pride for it. And the fans together, I think it's just such a united front, win or lose. I think we're just it's just a great club to be part of. But yeah, really just born into it, I suppose, rather than picking a team. Now, you know, I've moved to Surrey and moved a lot around when I was a child, etc. And everyone here tormenting me for being a bit of not a Man United fan or a Liverpool fan. But, you know, who's laughing now? I'm going to games, supporting your local club. And I think that's really important for all football fans, if possible. So what are your earliest memories of going to games? It's always a difficult one, actually. I did some writing for... I think it might have been a Sunderland programme or the Norwich one. You know, I do a bit of writing as well. And they were asking me, what's your first game and that kind of thing. I really couldn't remember. I was pretty sure it was Tranmere at home. But, you know, I was pretty young. I must have been six or something, seven maybe. So it's quite difficult to sort of pull that memory out. But just going to Fratton Park with my dad, I've got two brothers. Uh, you know, I'm the oldest of three. So we all sort of went down together. And now I suppose from just that sort of thing of me going down with my family, as I said, with the podcast now, it's really grown into a real social event as well, uh, which is great. Probably a hard question after well, not the last few seasons, but recent times, what have been the worst of times? I mean, the worst season, I suppose, on record for us in recent times has to be the 2012-2013 season. Uh, it's a season that we went into administration, having a 10-point deduction, and, you know, losing all our best players, it made it extremely tough for anyone really following the team. All the fans' efforts were really focused on saving the club from going out of extinction. And I suppose at the same time, it was the worst season you had on the pitch. But all the fans were united together at the same time. You know, it was like us against the world, people trying to shut us down, administration. And it was quite difficult to go through. But at the same time, I suppose the worst season could even have a sort of a silver lining to it. Yeah, what has been the best of times for you? In the, it's sort of two ways that I'm going to answer this question. And, and in some ways, we went on to save the club ourselves in 2013, 2014, which is the season after the worst season on record for us in modern times anyway. And that thing about the fans all chipping together, you know, saving, I think it was about a couple, one point something million that the fans managed to raise in order to, to buy the club and save it out of extinction. And that was, you know, one of the most proud moments I had as a fan that how much the, the fans cared for the club. And just by getting together in that unified front, we managed to, to purchase our own club. It was great on the first, on the first day back because we had like uh, across the back of the stand, ours. I remember getting really emotional um, and it was just, it was a fantastic thing to be involved in. But if you move on, I suppose, the best seasons properly, you've got the 2002-2003 season where Paul Merson came in from Aston Villa. We went from a near relegation side the season before to Harry Redknapp getting Merson in, being our talisman for the season and getting us promoted as champions. So that was probably 
one of the best seasons purely because we weren't doing well for years before. We were just about surviving in the championship and suddenly we we're going into the Premier League. I want to talk about Fratton Park. I absolutely love the place. What an atmosphere and just the architecture of it. Do you feel like that? And if so, what is it you love? Which stands, which bits? And, and do fans in general feel like that? Or is there a, a modern, more modern fan that would like to move to a, a big a stadium and make more money and all of the rest of it? I think all football fans can say there's nothing better than going to an old stadium that's in the middle of the terrace houses, you know, surrounded by the original pubs and, you know, the real beating heart, I suppose, of the community even rather than just a, you know, a stadium that is miles out of the of the uh, of a town or city. I think you look at Coventry and teams like that where they've got a new stadium, but it's moved out miles from the place. And for me, first thing is that it's just right in the centre, which is fantastic. Obviously, you're really close to the pitch. So you could literally, from one of the stands to the north stands, so the stand uh, running along the side of the pitch on the long side, you can literally reach out as a fan and pretty much clip someone's ankle if you wanted to at some point. Um, because they're that close if they're taking a throw into the action. And I think that adds to it. I remember we played AC Milan. It would have been, I'm going to say 2008, 2009. And Ronaldinho came and described it as one of the best atmospheres in world football he'd ever experienced. And the ground was just shaking and everyone was making this wall of noise, you know, from the first minute after. And it's really incredible, really. And I suppose when you're in that ground, when you're all packed in together, that close to the pitch and a passionate fan base like we have, it's it's an atmosphere that can be in the right situation, I suppose, completely unique to, to, I would say, English football to a certain level. I think the owners and I think the fans in general want to keep Fratton Park and want to redevelop the, the, the actual the site rather than moving the club. And it has been explored before, but Portsmouth's a very highly density sort of city. There is not a lot of land around in Portsmouth on the island. So you'd have to move the stadium most likely off the island of Portsmouth. Uh, I think fans, the owners, et cetera, are really wary of doing that and feel that it's not the right move for the club. I think we'd regret it. And we've what we've started doing is purchasing land around the ground so that hopefully we can then get this planning permission, which is going through very slowly over the years in order for us to extend the stands we've got currently. We've put quite a lot of money. I think the owners have put about 10 million reportedly anyway into the, the stadium sort of maintenance and, you know, doing it up a bit um, and a bit of development work to it. So everyone wants to stay at Fratton Park. Is it feasible for development going forward? I think only time will tell. That all said, do the people that love Fratton Park genuinely love that bloody bell? It's, it's a torn topic, <laughs> I suppose, between Portsmouth fans. And um, whether the, whether John Westwood Portsmouth FC is a positive or negative thing, because I suppose he's sort of spilling the same songs, you could argue, in some ways out. And I think some of the younger fans in particular really want to move the club on from that sort of maybe anti, you know, Southampton sort of songs and bring it into the modern era. He doesn't sit that far from me, if I'm honest, in the back of the, the, the frat and then where my season ticket is. So... In some ways, he adds he adds to the club, but I do feel like over the years, and think people like Sky Sports who have sort of bigged him up and got him on television and that kind of thing has drawn the focus away from the rest of the fans who are absolutely incredible. So my personal opinion, I suppose, you know, he's all right, but turning up partway through the game, drunk off your face, it doesn't always add to the atmosphere. 
and TV directors find another fan to focus in on. That's the big message here, isn't it? Please, just because you're wearing a tall hat with <laughs> tattoos and you call yourself Ports of FC doesn't mean you're the only fan to talk to. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. <laughs>